The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This is one of those special podcasts that we do every so often when a book comes along that we think that all of you folks ought to be reading. Um, uh, And uh, this book is particularly special because I think the author is particularly uh, important. Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of history at Boston College, um, and she she also writes a, a substack that's one of the most popular and thoughtful ones out there called Letters from an American, uh, and she's written a new book called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. W- welcome, Heather. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, I really uh, uh, admire what you've been writing. And um, I think the best place to begin with this book, which places this moment in a historical context, um, is maybe to place it in your own context, which is, at what point in the recent madness did you say, I have to write this book? Well, about about a year and a half ago now, maybe two years, and the book was originally intended to be a series of short essays answering the questions that my readers ask me all the time, because literally every day somebody asks me, what was the Southern strategy? How did the parties change sides? What is the Electoral College? You know, sort of those basic questions that that are so important to where we are right now, but that not a lot of people have ever had explained to them. So it was originally just intended to be kind of a what what one editor referred to as a American uh, history for dummies, you know, and as part of that series, not implying that the people who read it were dummies. And what happened was that as I began to pull those essays together, it became clear to me that there was a larger argument that I wanted to talk about. Uh, in terms of how a democracy can be at risk from an authoritarian. Like, why would people give up on democracy? So the book divided itself fairly naturally into three sections of short essays, one on how we got here, the next one on where here is, and the final one on how we get out. And I, I wrote the essays, and then I took about three months off. I got married. I you know did a, got ready for the semester, did a bunch of things. 
And when I went back to reading the manuscript, it what jumped out was an entirely different book than the one that I thought I had written. And the book ended up being an argument about the use of language and history to both undermine democracy and to rebuild it. And once I saw that, it almost felt as if the chapters had been chatting with each other when I wasn't looking, much as my students do, by the way. Um, and what I ended up doing was rewriting about 80% of the book. So what has emerged is something that I think I look at a bit like uh, a parent who has a, a child that they used to call a sport, somebody that you can't tell where on earth it came from but it seems to be doing something on its own that looks pretty interesting. And that's kind of the way I feel about this book. Unlike the other ones where, you know, you know what she set out to write and you write it and it is what you expected, about 80% of what you expected and you call it a day and move on. This one seems really to be much more a reflection of my readers and of this moment than I ever thought I could write. Um, well, I sort of know that, that, process. I've recently, I've found myself waking up in the middle of the night and saying, oh no, that's not the book you're writing. This is the book you're writing, um, uh, which has been disturbing my sleep. And then I send myself texts on my phone. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the book finds parallels and roots for a lot of the things we're going through now. And I think one of the the troubles that, that that we have now is that things often are out of context for people, that we all suffer from what I call temporal narcissism, which is this is the only moment. You know, this is that you know, this is this is this and 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 yet democracy has been at risk more or less from the beginning of the republic, no? Absolutely. And the the idea that somehow there is a perfect past for us to reach back to, and that if only we could return to that precious moment, we would all be fine, is, as I've argued, uh, a really authoritarian view of American history. That in fact, if you embrace the democratic idea of our history, it's constantly in motion. It's constantly being contested. It's constantly being built. And the triumph of the United States has been the degree to which marginalized Americans have managed to keep front and center the principles of the Declaration of Independence, the idea that we should be treated equally before the law and have a right to say in our government since the beginning and have based on that fronting of those principles been able to expand democracy you know, since it began as a, a, an idea in the minds of a very few, very elite white men. Well, it's interesting, you know, because first of all, it began as an idea in their eyes. It also limited power to them. And, and as you say, throughout history, different groups uh, that had been not disenfranchised, just not enfranchised women, people of color, uh, immigrant groups, other groups in our society have come, stepped up and said, well, wait a minute, there's a promise inherent in this idea of the United States. We're entitled to it. Um, but I, I think what is particularly resonant about this idea is that right now, when we look at the sort of nitty gritty of electoral politics in the United States, you say, what's going to decide next year's election about you know, whether we head in an autocratic direction or a democratic uh, direction, it's those groups that 
people say they're going to be the deciding groups. It's going to be women, maybe suburban women. It's going to be African-Americans, uh, people of color living in cities. It's, it's, it's going to be the ones who are left out. And who the current sort of revival of sort of authoritarian impulses are targeting again that that seem like they're the frontline fighters in all this. I think that's right. Uh, I also think that, well, I hope they're the ones who are the deciding factor. The reality is that in a number of important ways, those trying to destroy democracy have seized key nodes of power. And whether that will end up undermining the majority votes that otherwise would overwhelm them, I think is still an open question, although it's certainly not a secret question. A lot of us are, are working on it. I will say, you know, one of the things that's not in the book, though, that I think is, is really interesting in this moment, and I would love to hear what you have to say about it, is that it feels to me that although we focus a lot on the Republican Party and because it's imploding right now quite spectacularly, and as a, as a historian of the Republican Party, I find that fascinating, it does feel to me that under the Biden administration, the Democratic Party is finally grappling with the reality of what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 meant, that if in fact we are going to guarantee the right to vote of everybody in the United States with some limited exceptions, that is going to mean you have to understand that democracy is going to be racially and gender inclusive. And that's something I'm not entirely sure that we have fully grappled with before. Is that fair, do you think? I, I Not only do I think it's fair, I think it's a, a, a important um, insight. And it's, it, you know, one of the things that that resonates with me about that is that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, was passed seven years before Joe Biden decided to run for the Senate. In other words, he has been at the center of American politics for essentially the entire life of, you know, America, American democracy being on offer to everyone. Um, and he's struggled with it, I think, from time to time at different points in his career. But, I, I, you know, I think that the combination of a guy like him and someone like Kamala Harris, who would not have been possible um, without these changes in society, um, and the threat posed to all of this by the 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 actor that I think is going to be most important in next year's election, and that's not Donald Trump. It's the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, is is you know. Um, I think th those are the things that that play to make this a charged moment. And you know, Kamala Harris is out there now with a tour called the Fighting for Our Freedoms Tour. You know, she, where she's going to Gen Z and saying, "We've got to go and fight for this," um, because the the Roberts Court has put everything that you're talking about back at the center of the discussion. Well, the Roberts Court and the Roberts Court backed by extraordinary money, which is, you know, indicative of a, of a vision of the world that's run by a very few, very wealthy people. Um, I am also interested in this moment and, and 
am taking advantage of the fact that you are, are letting me on your podcast to ask it. I mean, one of the things that has fascinated me about the Biden administration is what seems to me to be an attempt to adjust democracy to a global scale while also dumping colonialism. And I thought the addition of the African Union to the G20 uh, a few weeks before you and I are speaking was a really big moment. And I was surprised at how little attention it seemed to get. Am I fair? Is that fair? Do you think that this is an attempt to to, to reinforce self-determination globally without colonialism? I think that's an element of it. But honestly, and maybe I'm a little too cynical because I've been doing foreign policy stuff for the past 30 years. Um, but I, I, I don't think you can overstate the degree to which global affairs today is about a competition between the United States and China. And U.S. foreign policy in almost every region of the world is seeking what Jake Sullivan has called situations of strength, which is a Dean Acheson term, which is it looks at every region of the world as essentially a playing field on which you want to gain as many advantages against your rival as, as possible. And the, the what happened was, the Biden administration came in with this framework, democracy versus autocracy. And they didn't realize how many people in the world that had alienated until the war in Ukraine started. And they started going around to people and say, help us out, be on our side, you know, condemn Russia, join in sanctions. And country after country in the global South said, we we didn't, you know, you were against our, our system. We're not going to support you. And so the Biden administration has had to back off of that to a, to a very large extent. And at the G20 meeting, the embrace of Modi is an example of that, right? And at the G20 meeting, the uh, uh, elevation of this idea of a of a railway system from Europe to India that goes through Saudi, which Saudi is the central component, is an example of that. And so, you know, I think in each one of these cases, it, you know, it may end up being that the Chinese are saying democracy is not important, and and we're saying yes, it is, and that this competition for influence between us ends up being about that. But I think it will be about that because that's the consequence of the nitty-gritty geopolitics of it, rather than our pursuit of some ideal. I like that. You know, the, that that I'm always suspicious of people who are uh, making political moves based on ideology. I like it when people are making moves based on what's on the ground. Well, I think that's I think that's what's happening. You know, China is the number one trading partner of 180 countries in the world. Um, every country in the Middle East, it's the number one or number two trading partner. Uh, every country in Latin America, most of the countries in Africa, um, and we're we're all of a sudden we've awakened to this, and we're like, well, how do we compete with that? 
Um, and almost all the foreign policy of the Biden administration, um, even to some extent Ukraine, but almost all of it, has been about you know this 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 rivalry that is now central to everything. Um, and the Chinese are super pragmatic. The ideology is not what the Chinese are about. It's not you know they may talk about you know. Um, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, so they may talk about communism, but what they really are about is how do we keep our country together? How do we keep from having unrest internally? And how do we continue to grow enough that, that, that the people are placated by what's happening, you know, economically in our society? And I, you know, my, my sense is um, that competition um, plays into the one at home in, in, a, in a variety of ways, not the least of which is there has also been a simultaneous rise of essentially ethno-nationalist autocrats. Um, you know, Putin, Modi to some extent, Netanyahu, um, uh, um, Erdogan, Bolsonaro, Orban. Um, and Trump, um, and that that is another sort of component of the of the the global playing field right now. Do you deal in the book with sort of the international roots of some of the trends? Not with that, and I'd be interested to know where you think that comes from. Uh, it's because it's not just economic competition. the The place that would be of interest, I think, is I have two things. One, I was not aware until the Trump administration started using similar tactics of the relationship between Nixon and and Watergate in the attempt to to rig the election of 1972, which he didn't need to do. He was going to win anyway, but the sign of his paranoia. I was not aware of the links between that and the attempts in Chile to figure out other ways to rig an election without leaving fingerprints. And when you saw, for example, the trucker convoys under um, the right wing in America recently and realized that they were an absolute mirror of what had happened under um, Pinochet or happened to, to get Pinochet into power, uh, that, that was a surprise to me, the degree to which certain figures in the United States had had not just supported the overturning of democratic uh, elections elsewhere, which I knew, but the degree to which they had literally tried out tactics. That was a surprise to me. Well, um, the very first document put out by the NSC, formed in National Security Act of 1947, NSC-1, or however it's char characterized, was about how we could rig the election in Italy so that the communists wouldn't win. Yeah. It was it had literally been part of the US playbook since the end of World War II. Well, I was um, not I was not aware that they'd really gotten to the level that they they figured out trucker convoys, for example. Um but the other point that that is more interesting, I think, for the present is the role that the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 had in the rise of governments that became authoritarian governments in the sense that 
for from the perspective of the United States. I mean, I think you can know it pretty obviously elsewhere, but I think we left as a nation, our leaders left that moment believing that democracy and capitalism were interchangeable. And so long as you pushed capitalism in other places, democracy would follow, or at least something called democracy. And we've had to grapple since then with the reality that creating capitalism in other countries did not mean you were creating democracy. Often it meant just the opposite. And that moment where the, the, um, especially within uh, Republican organizations, supported those in other countries that claimed that they were promoting democracy when they were in fact consolidating power. And the degree to which the rise of uh, oligarchs in the previous, in the, in the former Soviet republics especially, then used their money in England, I'm sorry, in the United Kingdom and in the United States to uh, begin to support political figures who would put in place laws that that would protect their money and help their money to grow. I think that's a feedback loop that was a real surprise to me and is probably going to be a surprise to other people. Yeah, it's interesting to me um, <clears throat> how cyclical these things are. Um, because when you describe all that, my reaction is, yeah, that's very interesting. And isn't it interesting that... Um, it, it it wasn't just the fall of the Soviet Union, but the rise of Reaganism and Thatcherism and vulture capitalism and Gordon Gecko greed is good mentality. The 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 hyper capitalism of the eighties is what became the successor modality in Russia. You know, it it drove the oligarchs. You know, hyper capitalism. It drove it around the world, and you know, throughout our history, that you know. This has manifested itself, and you know, during the agrarian part of our history, it manifested itself in certain ways. But the robber barons of the 1890s um, tried, you know, tried to drive and control everything, uh, and the degree to which they're successful is manifested in the fact that when you know Standard Oil got broken up, it got broken up into seven sisters, which are now the seven biggest oil companies in the world, more or less. You know, in other words. They they succeeded, but you know, in the wake of World War One, you know, there was this real tension in the United States about uh, the go-go capitalism of the twenty and how they twenties and how they were trying to drive U.S. foreign policy and how they were the ones who drove us into war and you know there was this this tension, um, and I mean to some extent that's where we are now because Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society and the handful of people who will literally sell out every American value so they can hold on to a little more of their taxes is, is another sort of, I don't know whether it's an apogee or it's a nadir of this concept. Does that yeah, and, and, and scan again, for you? We do go through it. And then we have these moments of democratic renewal, at least we always have in the past. And it certainly feels as if we're ripe for it now. Um, it is, um, I, I do think it's an interesting moment in that um, the the overlap here between Christianity is new in this, the idea that somebody like the, the people that we put on the Supreme Court now are all um, religious enthusiasts, 
evangelical Christians of a certain sort. And the overlap between that grab for power and the, the, the financial grab for power gives it a particular resonance, I think, with people who otherwise might not follow down that road. Yeah. But, and by the way, I just throw this out randomly, but knowing a bunch of people, knowing Chile pretty well, a lot of the people around Pinochet were also Opus Dei, um, which is just a kind of an interesting resonance in this. But the other thing that strikes me when we talk about it is we talk a lot about democracy now. We're saying democracy is at issue and so forth. But isn't really the issue the excesses of capitalism? Yes. I mean, we, we, we're not allowed to talk about that in the United States. That's the third rail. You can't say, we got to fix capitalism here. Um, uh, you, you certainly can't say, you know, those Northern Europeans seem to have it better than we did. You know, the, have figured it out better. But, but it does seem to me that that's what drives all of these things, where the capitalism goes to excess and, you know, you, we produce some kind of backlash. No, that's right. And and certainly in the United States, that's what we have had is uh, since Lincoln is a government that on occasion tries to rein in the excesses of capitalism. But I'll tell you something really interesting. And that's that we have a definition nowadays for capitalism about it being an economic system that, that bleeds into a political system and so on. But I got thinking about it a, a few years ago and I thought, where did we get the idea of capitalism in the United States? Because in the, the Civil War era, people talk about capital all the time, but they talk, they literally define it as pre-exerted labor. So, so what, where do we get the idea of capitalism? So I started to look through the newspapers. We can do these great store searches now for the word capitalist. And capitalist starts to arise in a really particular point in the United States, and it's in the 1880s. And it starts to rise in a really particular way. They are not talking about a political system when they start talking in the United States about capitalists in this period. A capitalist is somebody who has a lot of money. But what they're talking about is the idea of capitalists and capitalism standing against what they call socialism, which is, again, not international socialism, which is, which is a later product. What they mean by socialism after 1871 is the idea that if you let ordinary people vote, and by this, you should look at the words black in big letters, because this is in the period after the, 14th, the 15th Amendment. If you let ordinary people vote, they're going to vote for, you know, things like roads and schools and hospitals, and those can only be paid for by tax dollars. And those tax dollars are going to come from people who have money. Again, read white in big letters over this. But the idea of letting poor people vote is going to mean a redistribution of wealth. And therefore, it amounts to, through tax dollars, to, to build a, a new courthouse, for example, or a new school. And therefore, it amounts to socialism. In contrast to that, by the 1880s with the rise of the trusts, for example, and the rise of middle-class businessmen as well, we get the rise of the idea of capitalism, which is the idea that rather than having people at the bottom running everything by being able to vote, we have people with money being able to run everything because they're the ones who control the political system. So what they initially do in the United States when they're defining capitalism is they define it as a political system in which people who have money are the ones who get to call the shots, as opposed to what they call socialism, which is when people without the money get to call the political shots. And that 
that understanding of capitalism, I think, resonates more fully in our American political system than this idea that that we that capitalism is based simply in the concept of market economies, which we've always had in the United States long before they used the word capitalism. It has much more to do with being a political system. Isn't that cool? It is cool. But you know what I was thinking about as you were talking about it and that period um, is the 14th Amendment. Because, as you know, the majority of cases brought in United States courts asserting or claiming equal protection under the law since the 14th Amendment was ratified have been about corporations, not about people. And that, you know, I mean, things took a dark turn. You know, um, in there in those days, in the eighteen seventies and in the eighteen eighties, um, but we haven't turned away from it. And I, and I'll tell you something else. And you know, I mean, I, obviously, I'm fascinated talking to you, and we could go on for hours and hours. But I, I I'm working on something else right now. And what it, it I'm, I think we're about to come up against this hard as we get over the next couple of decades into the AI revolution, where the, 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 the capitalism that you were talking about then was industrial revolution era capitalism, in which um, you had exploitation of labor and, and so forth, as, as we've discussed it. But this new era is going to have the elimination of labor, um, and it's not going to be the people at the bottom of the food chain. It's going to be white-collar people. There are people right now in law school who think they're going to go and work at a law firm. But the stuff that people, associates did in law firms, is already gonna, starting to be done by AI. There are people right now in medical school who think they're going to be radiologists. But the reading of radiological output, whether it's an X-ray or an MRI, is done better by machines with AI than it is by people. And this goes on and on, teaching and other things are going to... And, and I think the, the, this period is going to lead to even greater inequality, greater concentration of power in the part of those who have access to comp- computational power and energy. Um, and and it may exacerbate everything that we're currently facing. It could, for sure. And the process you're you're talking about is already underway in engineering, for example. Um, it certainly could, but it also seems to me, as with all technologies, it has the potential to take us to places that are more fair and that are ones we can't see yet. So, the, and I, that sounded very vague, but let me put it this way. My father was born in in 1915 and was an accountant. And when the first calculators came in, everybody expected that, first of all, they were going to rot their brains. Their bosses wouldn't let them use calculators because they said, you have to be able to do all this math in your heads. And then they thought that it was going to make them obsolete. And what happened was instead calculators became a tool and we ended up with uh, 
with people not having to memorize their multiplication tables into the hundreds and instead being able to use those concepts for higher math and for, for creating different things. So, you know, what you're suggesting is sort of a dystopian hellscape, at least in my mind. And I would like to think that so much of what actual work is, is serving each other in some sort of capacity. And that if we hand over the, the, if you'll excuse me, but the shit work to the AI, it will give us more opportunities for figuring out ways in which better to serve humanity. Of course, now that brings to mind the, um, that to serve man episode of, um, the twilight zone. So maybe I just walked myself into a, into its own. <laughs> into its own uh, hellscape there. But but I don't have quite as bleak a view of it. Well, I don't actually have as bleak a view of it. I think it's just going to demand real changes. I yes. do think, I, I am concerned about the concentration of, of wealth and power. But, um, you know, you read um, McAfee and Brynjolfsson, The Second Machine Age, and you read about uh, things that, that uh, uh, you know, the, the how labor will change. And, um, you know, that's probably a good thing. I go out and give speeches on this a lot and people go, oh my God, you know, I want to have a job. That's my identity. We need to have a job in order to have an identity. And I'm like, well, you're buying this stuff that people have been peddling for a long time. You could sit in a field and write a poem and have a perfectly fulfilling life, provided you can figure out some way to get income. And that's the catch in in all of this, which is, you probably have to move to some kind of different form of redistribution of income, and we're you're, we're not allowed to talk about redistribution of income in the United States. That's a really yeah. important point, and that's one thing that really jumps out as a historian is that our discussions of the ways in which a society should be formed until very recently talked a lot about labor and capital and talked a lot about class. And the erasure of that from our discussions really since the 1970s, maybe, um, maybe the late 1960s is really shocking as a historian, as in certainly historians talk about it, but the the fact that we talk about so many things in our society without talking about what that means for who gets money and who ends up with all the money is you know i think speaks back to your point about gordon gecko in the in the 1980s is i sort of have this vision of ideologies in which they are based in the economy, but they become little mini tornadoes and they sweep religion and popular culture and literature and everything in around them so that they shut off all other forms of expression. And the lack of discussion of labor issues for 40 years, really, in the popular mind is striking. And it's also striking that it's now coming back. Well, it's interesting that it's coming back in part because Joe Biden is old school politician. But you know, you talk about being a historian of the Republican Party, and you talk about how we got to where we are. And part of how we got there is Ronald Reagan, which was that Gordon Gecko era and the Margaret Thatcher era and this idea. And, and the, you know, that that the pursuit of wealth was what society was about. And that you measured the health of our society by the size of our GDP and by the stock market. And um, you know, markets contained the answers to everything and solved all problems. They were sort of all knowing. And, and, um, you know, I was in the Clinton administration and I, I deeply regret 
that we bought into this and sort of offered Reaganism light. And for essentially the entire last 40 years, with the exception of the Biden administration, which has started to change it, that both parties have essentially been offering the same formulation, which is leave it to the markets. And it's only in the past three years that that started to change. Well, and I love what they're doing now in the in the Biden administration about saying that the the bottom line when it comes time to enforce antitrust, for example, is not just figuring out how cheap things are going to be for the consumer. We actually have to worry about laborers and competition and all in supply chains and all the other things that matter for a healthy society. But that does speak, I think, to the idea of tornadoes in that um while you might deeply regret that that's what the Clinton administration does, I would posit that you would not have been elected as a Clinton administration in that that era unless you had been at least part of that zeitgeist. And one of the things that really jumps out to me is you have much older politicians on the on the Democratic side who embrace an older vision of society. And you have very young ones, but you don't have many in the middle. And the reason that you don't have many in the middle is because I think that the people who were up and coming who thought that way simply ended up not being elected and ended up getting bled out of politics. Real loss. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one last question before we go. And this has to do with the thesis of the book, and it also has to do with, you know, you're looking at the Republican Party. It seems to me over the course of that period, 40 years, inequality has grown in the United States dramatically. Um, uh, uh, Wages have not grown in the United States dramatically. Uh, Productivity increases have not produced wage increases as they did historically. Um, And... uh, Somehow the majority of the American people began to shift in their views on some of these issues. And to me, one of the striking things today is that if you take the issues that are attributed to the left, climate, health care, fairer labor, uh, education reform, paying for universal pre-K, um, uh, providing uh, junior college, uh, 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 abortion rights, seven, uh, gun, gun control. 70% of Americans or more support all those things. And, you know, I, you know which is why I'm you know, vaguely optimistic about where things are going to go in coming elections and so forth. But where does the Republican Party go if so it I- is so driven by such an extreme group? Well, the short answer is I think we're watching it implode on a daily basis. I think the current incarnation of the Republican Party is done. I mean, the the Republican Party is no more. Let's put it that way. Um, but two things I, that I, I I do think it will rebuild, and let me explain that in a second. But but I think you would be more interested in this point. I have been fascinated by the whole concept as it was articulated by Russian political theorists of political technology. The idea that you can undermine a democracy by convincing people of something that is not true. And you do that by running false candidates who say they're going to do one thing and do another. You do it by um, just flooding the zone with shit, as Steve Bannon put it, so that people lose interest in politics altogether, say everybody's all the same and walk away, or by convincing them of lies, by gaslighting them. I mean, there's a whole, there's actually a sort of like a, a books about how one does this. But what's fascinating me about them is they never say what happens when people figure that out. 
And I feel like that's what we're seeing right now in the Republican Party. We're seeing people who recognize that they've been sold a bill of goods and they are either apathetic and they walk away, which is one of the things that, that you know, theorists of totalitarianism, for example, said would happen when people recognized that their, that their leadership was in fact lying to them, that they would just go fall, sort of fall back in the wayside. Or they are no longer voting with the Republican Party. That doesn't mean they're becoming Democrats, but that they're no longer voting with the Republican Party. And you can see this, especially since the Dobbs decision. Or, and this is the part that I've been playing with, or they've given up on anything but revenge. And one of the things that Trump has done really well is always to read his audience. And when he came out to announce his second run for the presidency for 2024 and said, I am your retribution, I thought, well, maybe this is it. Maybe if you feel like you gave your heart and soul to somebody and they lied to you, some people say, okay, I'm not going to play with you anymore. And they go away. Some people say, well, I'm going to fight against you. But some people say that I'm going to burn it all down. And I think that's who the Trump Republicans are right now. People who say, listen, I don't care if my house burns down so long as yours burns down first. And I just... From a, a from a political theory p- standpoint, it's just a fascinating moment to watch that happen. Now, in terms of the party itself, um, you know, I, 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 th- I, you know, for years I have said they're going to self correct because they always have in the past. You know, we've had these moments when the party got oligarchic, its own its own leadership, the younger leadership, and its voters said, "Hey, you've gone too far," and they are reborn. That's how we get the Teddy Roosevelt, for example. That's how we get Eisenhower. And for years, I have thought that that was going to happen. And I think we're, I think we've passed that point now. I, I, when, when you look at the bleeding out of even people that I would not consider moderates in any normal political spectrum being thrown overboard as rhinos or being unwelcome in the party, I think what you're seeing is that we're just going to burn it all down, people taking over the remnants of what was once a grand party. But that ideology of the party, that the the country moves best forward when you put uh, effort into the people at the bottom so they have access to resources and education and the ability to work hard and rise, and that that will support people above them and that will support finally a group of small group of industrialists at the top who will hire people at the bottom. That vision of society as a web as opposed to the Democrats' vision, which is much more, I think of it as a line. You know, we always, the government has to hold the playing field level between the haves and the have-nots. I think that vision is so deeply ingrained in the United States now because of its roots in the period right before the Civil War and because it has been around so long that another group, whether it calls itself Republican or not, will reclaim it, and probably not in in a very long stretch of time. And the Republicans will go the way of the Whigs? The Whigs did not end in a dishonorable way. The Whigs just fell apart. The Republicans are going into um, a, a, a disgrace that will echo not only in the present, but also over back against the past. And you know, I think we're going to have to weigh the Republican Party based on where it ended up, uh, not just on where it started. Well, I would say, you know, from your lips to God's ears, but but the reality is, um, I think it's in, undeniably the case. I think that's the way things are going to head. Um, that's why it's so important that people have the opportunity um, to read what you write, whether it's in letters from an American or it's in this new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. 
Um, and I am, I just c- couldn't be happier that we got the chance to talk. Uh, and I hope that we get to do so again before too long, because I, I learned so much from these conversations. They're so a thank great you, deal of fun. They're a great deal of fun. And I have to say now that the book is done, I'm, I'm a free woman. It's really great. So we will do it again soon. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And to everybody who's out there listening, we've got new podcasts every single day, really. So keep coming back and uh, uh, we'll, we'll try to, to live up to the level of this conversation provided by Heather. For now, bye-bye.